Hello everybody, Earl at thelogbook.com here to let you know that the logbook now has a new Pokemon. Uh, uh, Patreon. I mean, a new Patreon. If you're a fan of the site itself, its ever-expanding lineup of podcasts, the books based on the site's content, or all those kickin' Kasatochi chiptunes, you can help us keep the lights on and keep cranking out the stuff you like by heading over to Patreon and supporting us either a little or a lot. There are plenty of levels of participation, and there are some fun goodies in it for you, too, no matter which level you choose. Just head to patreon.com slash the logbook to see how you can help. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Mr. Announcer? The yum. Oh, my God. Like I'll be alive. Oh, my God. The city giver is dead. Oh, my God. I'll be Do not get this tape for Earl. Welcome back once again to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. It is February. We have survived a month of 2017 so far. I would like to think that this year is not going to go on the killing spree that 2016 did. However, we do have one unfortunate passing to report. The last man to walk on the moon in the 20th century. I I really like to append in the 20th century on that to give myself and others hope that he won't simply be the last human being to walk on the moon. Eugene Cernan was the commander of the Apollo 17 mission in December 1972. He died at the age of 82 on January 16th. He also had the distinction of being the second American astronaut to step out of his vehicle, in his case Gemini 9, and go on a spacewalk. Some slightly happier news. Star Trek Discovery has finally begun filming, or so we are told. Began filming on January 24th. The production revealed that they had cast actor James Frain as Sarek, Spock's father. Now, Star Trek Discovery happens around 10 years prior to the original series, so this is a younger Sarek. Obviously, the late, great Mark Leonard is no longer with us, so the role had to be recast. I am assuming that this is a case kind of like CGI Tarkin, where they couldn't tell the story without this character. James Frain, I had to look him up, and it took me a second to realize that I had seen him and really liked him in something before. If you remember Tron Legacy... James Frain was this really tall, thin, gaunt assistant to Clue. He was the guy with the shaved, bald head who always had this plastic faceplate throughout the entire movie and then turned against Clue at the very end. Well, spoilers. Tron Legacy's been out since 2010. Surely you've seen it by now if you have even the remotest interest. Now, what I have a remote interest in is... When are we going to get to see this show? CBS has announced that Star Trek Discovery is not going to hit its May 2017 premiere date. And they are now very vaguely alluding to a fall 2017 premiere. I'm kind of worried about this because I'm starting to get just a vague whiff of Star Trek Phase 2. Not the fan production, but the the 1970s revival of the original series. Basically, it was going to be like the long-delayed fourth season of James T. Kirk era Star Trek. And it was going to head up the schedule of a fourth network, the Paramount Television Service, which never got off the ground. Now, you're probably saying, well, Earl, I think we've, you know, we've passed the milestone. They've started filming. Well, they had filmed test footage for Phase 2 as well. It's, it's out there on DVD. You can see it. Test footage was shot. They had, they had the cast contracted. They had scripts in the can. They had scripts in the pipeline. This thing was going to be a series, and then it died on the vine. Basically, the reason it died on the vine was because the network that it was going to be on evaporated for lack of advertiser support 
And this happened because the other studios leaned hard on the three big networks in existence in the 70s, ABC, CBS, and NBC. Basically, they, uh, they, the other networks leaned on the advertisers who would be interested in advertising in Star Trek Phase 2, and they said, okay, if you advertise on Paramount's network, uh, we are going to drop Paramount's other shows. Like Happy Days was produced by Paramount for ABC, and basically they just strong-armed this Paramount network out of existence before it ever even premiered. I would rather they get this done right than get it done fast, but this is the at least the second schedule slip. And my frustration there is that, uh, <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, we are under a new presidential administration fraught with uncertainty. Fraught. Now there's a word you don't get to use in everyday conversation. Fraught. And I think uncertainty is about the most charitable way I can put it. We are entering an era where there are people who feel emboldened by the choice of chief executive we have sitting in the White House right now. They feel emboldened to discriminate, to basically be bullies. We really need that Roddenberry message on our screens like we have not needed it since 1968. 68 was a horrible, horrible year. And again, and I'm not going to be shutting up about this, no matter how long they delay the launch of Star Trek Discovery, it needs to be on TV. It doesn't just need to be on the internet. So perhaps we should seize this as an opportunity to put some pressure on CBS, put Star Trek Discovery on the air where people with a, a TV with an antenna can pick it up, not just people who are on their paid internet service. Because often the people who are being discriminated against the most, the people who are being marginalized and arguably oppressed, if you want to go that far, they are usually not in a position to shell out six to ten bucks a month just to watch Star Trek. So... Yeah, let's, uh, let's keep making sure CBS knows this needs to be on the air because the message needs to be getting out there in a way that it has... Star Trek has always been a message show, and it's always been big on messaging, and that message has been one of inclusiveness and tolerance, if not embracing people who are not like you. We need that now because we are certainly not getting it from the White House. In other news, National Geographic Channel has renewed the Ron Howard-produced series Mars. This actually goes to a second season. How did that happen? Uh, here's the thing. It was incredibly well-produced. I mean, as far as the special effects and the staging, the filming and the, the sets, the costumes, the spacesuits, and so on... Yeah, you could totally believe that these people were on Mars. So what is my beef with the first season of Mars as it aired? It was such a dreary show. It was like these people drew the short straw and they're going to Mars. Uh, no, the people who go to Mars, the first people who go to Mars, they're going to be the people who want to go to Mars. You know, it's not going to be this assignment that they draw and it's like, oh... God, I'm going to Mars. Uh, no. No. No, no, no. I hope they lighten it up for the second season. That would be... It, it should be a show about awe and wonder. And yes, it's not going to be easy to go to Mars. It's And yes, it is going to be dangerous. But the first season of this show was just so... downbeat. I... It really needs a rethink going into year two, National Geographic. That's all I've got to say. I mean, this is produced by Ron Howard. This is produced by the guy who gave us Apollo 13 and From the Earth to the Moon, both of which were just magnificent adventures 
that showed that our space pioneers were the best of us. And we still need that. For the same reason we need Star Trek Discovery to finally get it in gear and get on the air. We need to see the best of us on our screens. <sighs> Detecting a theme here? It's not like I'm frustrated or concerned or anything. Really, I promise. Across the Atlantic, the Doctor Who spin-off Class is now airing in what they call a post-watershed time slot on BBC One. What that means, and that's a apparently a, a frequently used term in British broadcasting, that basically means sometime after 9 or 10 o'clock at night. Class had already aired on an online service, here we go again, where it did not exactly break any ratings records. In fact, it, uh, it broke bad ratings records, because after the first two episodes had aired for the show's premiere, the following six weeks of, epi of new episodes were watched by fewer than 100,000 people in the UK. If you're in the US and you want to know what this show is all about, I will tell you this, it is much closer in content and maturity to Torchwood than it is to Sarah Jane Adventures, even though it takes place in a high school. It is, you know, it is not for the faint of heart. And, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a good show. I enjoyed it. I would like to see it come back, but that really depends on the ratings that it gets on both sides of the Atlantic. We in the States, who haven't already resorted to nefarious means to see it, that's right, Maria, we will have to wait until the spring when BBC America will air it alongside the new season of Doctor Who. That's a completely mystifying scheduling decision to me. Does anyone remember, you know, sort of the heyday of Doctor Who spin-off universe? Which I guess would have been, you know, 2006 through 2008, where you had Doctor Who on in the spring. And then you had Sarah Jane Adventures in the fall. And then in the winter months you had Torchwood. None of these shows were on at the same time of year as the other shows. And so you effectively had new adventures in the Doctor Who universe for three quarters of the year. That was wonderful. I loved that. So, you know, if we're not doubling up and doing the kind of crossovers that we used to have on the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman, where they're on one right after the other and they're fighting Bigfoot and Fembots and what have you, you know, if we're not doing one-two punches like that, why not stagger them throughout the year? It's completely baffling to me. Speaking of Torchwood, Big Finish Productions has gotten the last holdout among the Torchwood cast aboard for audio adventures. Burn Gorman returns as Owen Harper for an audio story that is due out later in 2017. Now, I really hope this portends a reunion of the entire Season 1 cast of Torchwood on audio. They have already done a full cast production with the, the trio of Captain Jack and Gwen and Yanto, and basically the, the children of the pre-children of Earth era, but post-season two. If they can get Fern Gorman and Naoko Mori into the studio with John Barrowman and Gareth David Lloyd the rest of them and you know they've even gotten secondary characters to do these audios Big Finish could revive Torchwood in a way that the BBC is apparently completely unwilling to do so that's my challenge to Big Finish get the band back together oh and my other challenge to Big Finish please don't water Owen down season 2 was such a mistake meanwhile in news from what apparently seems like an alternate universe of game software, there is an Apple II homebrew of Portal. Yes, that Portal. The, the page for this homebrew describes Portal as a cake acquisition simulator 
released in 2007. The game basically gives you a 2D version of the first two levels of Portal, plus it has the ending song. Vince Weaver was the programmer who ported Portal to the Apple II, and not only did he port Portal to the Apple II, he did it in AppleSoft Basic. He didn't even use machine language. This guy is hardcore. He has also ported Kerbal's Space Program to the Apple II, which is also a work in progress. So I will include a link to Vince Weaver's Apple II ports of modern software on the show page for your amusement and edification. You can download the disc images and try them out with an Apple II emulator on your own computer. And there is also, I saw this the other day, and the name of it escapes me, but I will put a link to it again on the show page at thelogbook.com slash this tape. There is an Intellivision game coming out, which is basically, it's like an Intellivision adventure game in the style of the early Ultima games, with a persistent world where it's not completely random. There is a timeline of events, and you're sort of racing the clock to complete your quest. Yeah, who knew the Intellivision even had that kind of game in it? It looks incredible. I can't wait for that to come out. Speaking of space programs, because we kind of started out talking about fallen space heroes, here is a sobering thought for you. This March, March 2017, will mark a longer stretch with no American manned spaceflight than we've ever had before. The previous record holder was the doldrums between the last Apollo flight in 1975 and the first space shuttle flight in 1981, a six-year gap, basically. It has now been longer than that since the last space shuttle flight in 2011 and SLS and Orion still are not flying. And we wonder why our kids are unenthusiastic about getting into the STEM fields of study. What have I been playing, watching, listening to, etc. around here? Well, Christmas happened, and so did some neat stuff. I purchased for my oldest the Atari Flashback Portable. It's a really neat little package. I haven't spent as much time playing it as you would think I would have, because, quite honestly, the display on it is so tiny, it hurts my eyes trying to focus on it. Which probably says more about my 40-year-old eyes than it does about the actual screen on the Atari Flashback Portable. I haven't heard too many other people complain about it. My son certainly doesn't. He loves it. The controls are decent. The game selection built into the machine is kind of... So-so. There's a, there are some old favorites in there, you know, combat, Yars Revenge, that sort of thing. But there is an unusually high number of homebrews and hacks that are not original to the Atari 2600 software library. They originally, they originate from the ranks of homebrew programmers on AtariAge.com and communities like that. It really has me wondering, do these homebrew authors get paid royalties every time their games pop up? on another one of these Atari flashback systems? Or did they make the mistake of signing it all away for far too little money? However, the flashback portable does have one thing that the previous flashbacks did not have. It's an almost undocumented feature. I think there are a couple of sentences about it in the documentation that comes with the flashback portable. There is a port for an SD card. If you have... Atari bin files. If you have ROMs in the form of bin files, put all the bin files on the SD card that you want to, slam it in 
the uh, little slot, power it up, direct your menu to the SD card browser, which is a completely different style of menu, and you can load your own games on it. Now, it used to be in the early days of the flashback consoles, back when they were things that you hooked up to your TV, it used to be that you would have to hack a cartridge slot into the casing and mutilate the thing to add games to it. This time, it's, it's right there. They just don't really tell you a whole lot about how to do it. You have to name a directory on the SD card. Game or games, I forget which. And there's another catch. Not all Atari 2600 ROMs will work. Uh, two of the biggies that I noticed do not work are Atari Pac-Man and Parker Brothers Port of Cubert. Neither of those work, which is... I'm not that disappointed about Atari Pac-Man because it's a tire fire. Cubert, that kind of hurts. That kind of hurts. I was a bit disappointed there. Those are major titles in the 2600 library. E.T. works. I know you're all uh, dying to play that. Um, Imagic's Cosmic Arc doesn't um, doesn't look the way it should, doesn't function the way it should. However, if you happen to look under the right rocks, there is an earlier draft of Cosmic Arc floating around out there in ROM form, which does not have the star field, and it seems to be the star field that throws off the flashback portable. I played this sort of starless version of Cosmic Arc, and it worked fine. My son was very happy. Two of his favorite 2600 games work just fine from the SD card, those being Blueprint and 3D Tic-Tac-Toe. And there's one other curiosity about the Flashback Portable. Frogger is on there, and that's cool, but it's not the 2600 version of Frogger. It's the arcade version of Frogger. Uh, that just kind of threw me for a loop. It's not unwelcome, but, you know, in in and among stuff like Math Grand Prix and Adventure, you, you know, to suddenly have this arcade-perfect port of Frogger on there, it's like, what? And continuing the Atari-tastic Christmas we had around here, I received the book Art of Atari by Tim Lapatino. I hope that's how you pronounce his name. It's a it, it's very much a, a coffee table book. It's one of these things that you leave out on the table saying, you know, hey, everyone, check this out. Basically, the book is about the history of the artwork and design of Atari products, especially the game-specific artwork that was on the cartridge boxes and on the cartridge labels that you saw in the stores. And the book makes a very good point that the graphics on the Atari 2600 were so primitive that any sheer spectacle was really down to the box art. The book looks, you know, from its design and its choices of font and so on, looks like it's going to be completely centered on the 2600, but I was very happy to open it up and see that there are plenty of pieces of artwork from Atari 5200 games and Atari home computer games, the 8-bit computers that were out in the early 80s. There's lots of artwork from those. There are also lots of prototypes and notional designs that I hadn't seen before. That kind of surprised me because I have hung out in the company of some serious Atari collectors, and some of this stuff I had not seen before. There were a few of these roads not taken that really made me slap my forehead and wonder why they didn't use those designs. There was a proposed redesign for the Atari 2600 cartridge boxes, which featured a grid background and, you know, very 80s silver foil and rainbow-striped, you know, prismatic elements that I thought looked great. And that's not what they went with. And there are some other, there are some other uh, rejected pieces of art, such as Hiro Kimura's rejected Pac-Man cover art that made it look like it was some sort of a survival horror game. Which, you know, that's just really interesting because it it's kind of the tip of an tip of an iceberg, which is yeah, if you if you take the concept of Pac-Man 
at face value, work out what it's about, try to place it in a real space mentally, it's terrifying. It's totally a survival horror game. Hiro Kimura was the artist who... I really liked his stuff in this book. Anyway, the book is called Art of Atari. It's by Tim Lapatino. There is a poster book of some of the original Atari cartridge artwork coming out later this year. It's not going to be cheap, but anyone who has ever wanted some Atari artwork on their walls, it might be worth it. Art of Atari is also not cheap, but again, very much worth it. What have I been listening to? Oh, the expanded version of the soundtrack for the 1996 movie Twister just came out. And I have been waiting for this for 21 years. Now, that's kind of a sobering thought because it means Twister is old enough to drink. But here's the thing. There's a, a scene in Twister where the Storm Chasers are... They basically go off-roading unintentionally. And they are trying to figure out where they are, and there is a character played by Alan Ruck of Ferris Bueller fame, who is supposedly the master of the maps, and he doesn't know where they are. And it's kind of funny, but the music in this scene, you know, starts out as this kick-butt, you know, orchestral ostinato. I mean, the cello section really gets a workout. And then, before you know it, you realize that they are playing the lead-in chords to Humans Being by Van Halen, and in the movie, it crosses over into that. You know, it goes from orchestral to Van Halen, and it's awesome. That piece of music, which is maybe two minutes long, it's called A Walk in the Woods, was not on the original 1996 CD release of the Twister soundtrack. I've been waiting 21 years for that. And finally, I have it. Totally worth the price of admission. Now... Early in January, when La La Land Records announced that they were going to be releasing the Twister soundtrack, I thought to myself, you know, I haven't seen the movie in a while, I'm going to rewatch it. And I found, <laughs> and, and this, is kind of, this is kind of going off in a, a walk in the woods here, but bear with me. Scientifically, in its use of scientific and meteorological jargon, Twister is still dumb as a box of rocks, which... It's pretty startling considering that it was co-written by Michael Crichton of Jurassic Park fame, Westworld fame. But where the movie is for me, it's in the characters and their relationships, especially all of these second-string Storm Chaser characters. You know, the underfunded academic Storm Chasers who are following Bill Paxton's character around. That's where the heart of the movie is. Because here's the thing. Yeah, you know, I've worked in broadcast. I have known storm chasers. I know people like that. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman's over-caffeinated, straggly, long-haired storm chaser. I know people like that. I know that character. Now, here's the thing that really struck me as I was re-watching Twister for the first time in many years. As much of a fail as the movie gets on use of scientific and meteorological lingo, Twister makes more sense now than it did in 1966. The movie kind of demands that we root for Bill Paxton's team. They're underfunded academic storm chasers, they're doing pure research with no money, and we are asked to root against Carrie Elway's team. And Bill Paxton's character tells us, you know, they have commercial sponsors, they're storm chasing for the money. That made absolutely no sense in 1996. There was no commercial storm-chasing industry to speak of. The thing is, now, in the 2010s, we have TV storm-chasers. We have people doing storm-chasing tourist operations. There are now storm-chasers who are in it for the money, and they are getting in the way of actual spotters and researchers. Worse yet, they're putting themselves in a position to be killed. Uh, there was a father and son team, uh, Tim and Paul Samaras. They were killed in that monster tornado that hit El Reno, Oklahoma in June 2013. Those guys were actually doing research. They were well known for being very cautious and meticulous. They were not thrill seekers. If those guys could get killed, then the people who are treating storm chasing as a for-profit tourist exercise are putting unsuspecting people into harm's way in a big way. 
And so there's an element of Twister that made no sense in 1996 that makes perfect sense in 2017. So does Hollywood need to reboot Twister and take advantage of that? No, not unless they want to make it smarter. Although I will admit that a few years back I had a crazy idea about reformatting Twister and rebooting it as a TV series, you know, with an eye on making it smarter. But even if someone did that, it wouldn't have that Mark Mancina music that leads into Van Halen. So let's just leave it on the shelf where it is. At some point, I owe you guys a tornado episode of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. Especially regarding the 1996 downtown Fort Smith tornado that I lived through at uncomfortably close range. I was living and working within two blocks of Ground Zero. Little spoiler for that future episode of this podcast. That was way the hell scarier than Twister. more recent than Twister? Yes, I have. And that's what we're going to talk about in this segment. Hidden Figures. That is a fantastic movie. It's based on a true story, and I need to double back and read the book that it is based on, because apparently only half of the book makes it into the movie. Hidden Figures concerns itself with three black women who were working in NASA, working for NASA, at the dawn of the manned space program, you know, as the space race was just igniting with the launch of Sputnik. Their job basically was to do computation and calculation for NASA, calculating trajectories and other such equations that needed to be done before anything could be put into space, because there were no computers. You didn't even have the room-filling open real tape deck computers that are so often seen in movies from the 60s and 70s, that didn't exist yet. People had to do the math. They had to sit with slide rules and tables and just write it out longhand. These women, even though some of them have degrees, this is really all they can do to take advantage of those degrees that they have because this being the late 50s, early 60s, they're women and they're black women. And it's, oh, it's, it's painful sometimes. The movie really does not shy away from showing how ingrained the institutionalized racism and the institutionalized sexism were. There are times when I just wanted to be sick for these women. Now, I've seen a couple of reviews accusing the movie of soft-peddling that but I'm okay with that. Here's why. Hidden Figures is a very inspirational movie and it's very family friendly. And if you have daughters, regardless of the color of their skin, they need to see this movie. They need to be inspired by this. Yes, racism and sexism were both horrible then. They are still horrible now. However, this movie's value is in inspiration, not intimidation. There's plenty of grim dark out there on other movie screens right now. It, it's not needed here. You don't need to be shoved into a pit to know that there's a pit there. Hidden Figures is uplifting without being completely Pollyanna. The struggle is present. It is not minimized. It is not completely omitted. But the story that the movie is trying to tell is these three women's determination to break the mold, to break the glass ceiling, and to break through the brick wall of racism. It, like I said, it's a fantastic family movie. There's really, there's really not much objectionable in it. I love the, the three women who star in it. 
They are fantastic. I was surprised to see, in a somewhat secondary role, Jim Parsons of the Big Bang Theory. And he's kind of an adversarial character at, when he is introduced. And by the at the very end of the movie, the very last scene of the movie, he does something that indicates that his attitudes have turned around. And, you know, I just wanted to jump up out of my seat and say, Yeah, buddy, about time. Kevin Costner is in this, and I did not know that going into it. Uh, I really... I, I think somewhere between having kids and not really having time to keep up with Hollywood gossip and Hollywood press releases, and the fact that I like to be surprised by what I see. I didn't know Kevin Costner was in this, and I have not liked him this much in a movie since JFK, if I'm to be completely honest. Uh, the soundtrack in this movie is sensational. It is a collaboration between Hans Zimmer and Farrell Williams. That's an interesting combination. It produced fantastic results that fit the movie like a glove. And I'm not going to say anything else about that because I have a whole soundtrack podcast that I do, and that's probably going to show up on my other show sometime this year. Hidden Figures glosses over a few historical details, just a little bit, but the historical backdrop is pretty well known, and whether you're talking about the Freedom Riders or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or the Mercury Space Program, those are all context, but they are not the central plot of the movie. They are they are there to give you fixed points in time, to use a bit of Doctor Who lingo, to kind of put a pin in the map and make sure you know when this is happening. So I I cannot recommend Hidden Figures to you highly enough. Go see it. Go see it while it's in the theaters. Take your kids, take your daughters especially. It's, you know, it's perfect for them, and it's very inspirational. And I really did not expect to find another movie within a month of Rogue One that would almost make me forget having seen Rogue One. Hidden Figures is that good. So, since we have, we've been talking about fallen space heroes, we've been talking about long gaps in space programs, we've been talking about a movie about the dawn of the American space program, let's keep getting just a little bit spaced out, because I'm going to try to track, backtrack my own obsession with space exploration for you. You may find this hard to believe, but I actually backed into my space obsession through sci-fi, which I suspect that's really the story for a lot of people. However, I can totally identify for you the flashpoint, you know, sort of the the lighting of the fuse. It was a 61-page-long hardcover kids book called The Star Wars Question and Answer Book About Space. It was written in 1979 by Dr. Dinah Moshe and illustrated by David Kawami. Like I said, this is just 61 pages long. This is a, a little slip of a book. However, it's fascinating because it deals with manned and unmanned spaceflight. And keep in mind, this was during, you know, this was in the 1970s between Apollo and the space shuttle when American manned flights were simply not happening for a stretch of six years. Somewhat surprisingly, the book gives the Soviet space program its due for space station activities and successes with probes to Venus at the time. The current space news at the time of the book's publication were the Viking probes to Mars, Voyager 1 and 2, which had launched only a couple of years earlier. 
and the landing test of the Space Shuttle Enterprise where it was dropped off the back of a 747 to see if it could actually glide to a landing. Good thing to drop it off the back of an airliner to find that out with two guys aboard rather than, you know, sending a full crew up to space and then, you know, we come back through the atmosphere and whoops, uh-oh, <laughs> the numbers didn't work out. The numbers worked out fine. The book deals with some pretty advanced stuff for a book directed at kids. Radio astronomy, black holes, spectroscopy. It's a really good primer for the state of space exploration around 1979. I wish they would update it so it can capture this new generation of Star Wars addicted kids that we're going to wind up with in the Disney era of Star Wars. What effect did this book had on me? I wanted more immediately. I needed another fix because I was absolutely fascinated by this whole universe that was all at once emptier and yet more exciting than anything in the movies. Fortunately for me, it being 1979, there was the National Geographic magazine coverage of the Voyager flybys of the planet Jupiter, and National Geographic also gave lots of editorial space to the upcoming space shuttle program. And the funny thing is, I remember in 1977, my mother had actually drawn my attention to the live coverage of the first flight of the Space Shuttle Enterprise, you know, dropped off the back of a 747, because she knew that I was all over Star Wars, and I, I seem to remember at the time thinking, that's cool, but it's no X-Wing, and looking back at it now, I, I think slightly older kids probably, that probably lit a fuse with them more than it did me. My fascination with space continued into the 1980s. The Voyagers visited Saturn, Uranus, and so on. Somewhere in there, I started a collection of mission patches from various NASA missions, mostly Apollo and Shuttle, and I still have those to this day. My mom sewed several of them on a sleeveless vest jacket that I wore, and there were so many of them piled onto this jacket that it added a pound or two of weight to the jacket. It was really a thin jacket, but <laughs> the patches made it twice as heavy as it started out. In 1986, in the summer of 86, family went on a vacation to New Jersey to visit my grandfather, my mother's dad. And I discovered that behind the photography studio that he had in his basement, there was a room full of National Geographic magazines stretching back to the 1930s. But basically the full run of National Geographic from the 30s onward. I was in love. I immediately set about looking up all of the space articles, even the ones that predated the satellite age. And this really disturbed my grandfather because, you know, here I was in a different state, in a whole different world, the first time I'd been to New Jersey since I was a toddler, and I was in his basement reading National Geographics. So he finally dragged me out of there and drove me into New York City to visit the Hayden Planetarium. Now, it's important to note that this was 1986. The Hayden Planetarium no longer exists in the form that it was in then. It is now part of something else. It's part of a larger museum, and it's a much bigger deal. I'd really like to go back. <laughs> but the <laughs> if he thought it was exasperating trying to get me out of his basement collection of National Geographics, then he had to peel me out of the Hayden Planetarium gift shop because there were tons of books I wanted to get, and yeah, there was a whole wall of mission patches. I think I got out of there with about five or six new patches that I talked him into getting for me. At the time, I was also a huge fan of a book called The Illustrated Guide to Space Technology. It was written by Kenneth Gatlin. I actually still have that book sitting on my shelf, the same copy of it. It is very well-worn now. And there was also a Byron Priest anthology called The Planets, which paired factual essays about each planet with a short story by a master-level science fiction author. We're talking Frank Herbert, Harry Harrison, Isaac Asimov, Philip Jose Farmer, to name just a few off the top of my head. 
each planet had a factual essay and then at least one short story that focused on that planet, events around that planet. Now, the funny thing about the planets is it was published in 1985, and so you had a factual essay about the planet Uranus, which was about to be visited for the first time in January 1986. So basically, everything about Uranus in that book turned out to be um, not really wrong, but... And, and there was, there was a, a, a part of the essay in the book that acknowledged this, that basically said, uh, everything you're reading here is about to be seriously outdated. Voyager 2 was the space probe that visited Uranus in 1986, and in 1989, in late August 1989, Voyager 2 flew past Neptune at a distance of a few thousand miles over the north pole of the planet on its way out of the solar system. Now, there was live coverage of this on PBS, and I stayed up for 36 hours. I was 17 years old. I just turned 17 in July of 89. I stayed up for 36 hours to watch this live coverage of Voyager 2's encounter with Neptune. There was a show on PBS called Neptune All Night, and the... The 36 hours came from the fact that I was already, at that time, I had just started working a a, a 10-hour Sunday morning sign-on shift at the local FM oldies station. And so I went from staying up all night to see the, to see the closest pictures of Neptune and its big moon Triton as they came down live on TV, and then went straight into a 10-hour sign-on shift at the radio station, which I could barely stay away for. So, or stay awake for. I'm still not awake now, apparently. <laughs> when I was working my first TV job in 1993, I remember sitting in the control room with NASA's live feed on one of the satellite dishes, obviously not the one that was on the air. I was watching the first mission to repair the Hubble Space Telescope, and this was astounding and terrifying in equal measure. I really got addicted to that NASA live feed. It was called NASA Select TV at the time. I believe they still call it that. Now, I would tune it in frequently if there was an open dish that was not being used to record a show that we would actually be putting on the air. It, and if there wasn't a shuttle mission currently in progress, they would air all sorts of NASA historical films, which most of those are now on YouTube, and I love those things. I can just sit and watch those for hours. And the funny thing is, uh, that's a habit that persists to this day. There is a Ustream live channel called HDEV, the High Definition Earth Viewing Experiment. It is a cluster of HD cameras attached to the outer hull of the International Space Station. And while it is in range and while it has a visible target because the International Space Station does occasionally pass onto the night side of Earth and then you're just looking at blackness. But the somewhat big screen TV that I have, which I've I've had an HD TV now for only about a year. I, I was a very late adopter of HD technology. About 85% of the time that the thing is on, that's what I'm looking at, is the view from the space station. Kind of relaxing. In 2005, I went to a reunion of the Apollo-Soyuz test project mission that originally flew in 1975. So in 2005, they were celebrating their 30th anniversary at the Stafford Air and Space Museum in Weatherford, Oklahoma. And that is a hidden gem, if ever there was one. It may not be the National Air and Space Museum in Virginia, but it is worth the three hours drive into Weatherford versus the <laughs> probably two-day drive to get to Virginia from Arkansas. The Stafford Air and Space Museum is named for General Thomas Stafford, who flew aboard Apollo 10. He was part of the class of astronauts that was flying the Gemini missions, and he flew two of the Apollo missions to the moon, but did not... I don't believe he walked on the moon. Stafford was also a member of the Apollo-Soyuz crew, the American crew. Not all of them are still with us 
And so at this event commemorating the 30th anniversary of that flight, I met General Thomas Stafford. I met Vance Brand, who was an astronaut who flew in the Apollo-Soyuz mission and later went on to fly the shuttle, as well as Russian cosmonauts Alexei Leonov, the first man to walk in space, and his fellow so former Soviet crew member Valery Kubasov, who has since passed on. I've been back to the Stafford Museum several times since then. I have taken both my kids. And yes, I can tell you they have a gift shop and there are mission patches there. This really all goes back to the Star Wars question and answer book about space. Last, in one of last month's shows, I talked about how Star Wars basically kind of rewrote my DNA. And the Star Wars question and answer book about space is a part of that. It rewrote my DNA in a way that may even be more significant than my attachment to the fiction of Star Wars. I love knowing that we are capable of exploring space and that the reward out there is knowledge and maybe the survival of the human species. Anyone who has noticed in recent years that the logbook has gradually evolved from a sci-fi site or a sci-fi and video game site to a sci-fi plus science and space history site, what you're basically seeing is the result of that book. If somehow between the history timeline that refreshes every day or with the daily podcast that makes you sit through highlights of science and space exploration before you get to the celebrity birthdays and the fun sci-fi stuff. If somewhere in there I can have the same effect on some young person reading or listening out there and spark that same lifelong fascination in them that that Star Wars book sparked with me, that kind of makes it all worthwhile all the effort I've put into it. Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash this tape on FeedBurner and on iTunes every month that it's produced. If you like this and the logbook's other podcasts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash the logbook. Your support has a direct impact on site hosting costs, podcast production, and other great content. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written, produced, and hosted by Earl Green, who also did the music, so you probably shouldn't give a synthesizer to Earl either. Especially not if there's a tape nearby. 